Welcome to the Sports Up Podcast, where we feature groundbreaking leaders in sports and share their inspiring stories. Now, let's get started with the show. This episode is brought to you by me, Meredith Sims. My biggest personal and professional passion is to be one of the top female leaders in sports broadcasting, a typically male-dominated industry. I started this podcast to share inspiring stories, and one of my goals is to intern for a professional sports team. So if you're listening and you know someone I should connect with, please email me because I'm willing to work super hard. Or if you know of an inspiring female leader, email me at meredith at sportsuppodcast.com. I'm always looking for more great guests to feature. Visit sportsuppodcast.com today to check out more episodes. For today's episode, I have a really exciting guest here. Professor Annie Gilbert Coleman is an associate professor of American studies at the University of Notre Dame. Her research focuses on the cultural and environmental history of outdoor sports and recreation and she teaches courses on wilderness, sports, and national parks. Thank you, Professor Coleman, for taking the time to share more about yourself and your research with me today. You are welcome. It's great to be here. All right. So I kind of wanted to start off with saying I'm truly fascinated with how your research intersects not only outdoor sports and gender and race, but also brings in the Western regions of the United States. So can you touch on a little bit about how did you find yourself focusing on this area of study? Sure. Well, it's it's a little bit embarrassing, but I guess it makes perfect sense. I grew up in New Hampshire, um, in Hanover, New Hampshire. Our town has a really deep sport history with outdoor sports, outdoor recreation, and I grew up skiing there. Um, I went to college in the East and taught prep school for a few years in Connecticut. Uh, I was on the ski team at college, and I was a mogul skier before that. And then... Um, I decided I would like to get a master's degree so I could be a better prep school teacher. And I had been trying to get jobs in the West for a little while without, I came close, but didn't get there. So when it came time to apply for grad schools, I applied to Western grad schools and thought it would be smart because I was interested in all kinds of history to say that I was interested in history of the American West. (laughs) So I landed at CU Boulder Colorado in 1990 and started learning the history of the American West. I um, wrote my master's thesis on the farming and ranching families in the Roaring Fork Valley, which is the valley right below Aspen. And I, I did that partly because I got a research grant to go live there and do some research for the Aspen Historical Society. So um, I was interested in that community, uh, casting around for topics for my dissertation, I thought, you know, gender, Western communities was really interesting to me, but nothing was really making me super excited. So I had some talks with some some different mentors and they suggested that it would be okay if I wrote a PhD dissertation in history on skiing in Colorado, which I thought was amazing <laughs> that that would be okay. Um, but I wasn't going to I just decided to jump on that as soon as they said it was possible. So um, that's how I came to the topic. That PhD dissertation turned into my first book, which is called Ski Style, Sport, Culture in the Rockies. Um, And it's essentially a history of skiing and the ski industry in the Rocky Mountains, mostly in Colorado. Yeah, great. So adding on to that, why do you think and, and what have you learned is essential about understanding how sports and and recreation in the West particularly 
is important for people to learn about and kind of understand that history and and how you've turned that into kind of a career and, and a passion of yours um, through what you were just talking about and the research that you've done? Well, I think I like to study sports and recreation and gender in the West because I like to I like to recreate in the West. <laughs> and I, I think that research is important primarily because it helps improve the quality of our access to those experiences. It, it Knowing how outdoor recreation has grown into an industry helps us understand the structural relationships that are really important to Western economies and Western tourism, but also the relationships that kind of position men and women slightly differently in in those mountain mountain towns, mountain landscapes. Um, they help us think about class and race more critically. And I think understanding how those dynamics functioned in the past is really important to help us kind of improve the quality and uh, an amount of access to a more diverse group of of folks today. Um, having said that, one of the inherent conflicts of outdoor recreation is that outdoor recreationists tend to really value the preservation of landscapes as kind of undeveloped places where it's possible to go and recreate. The more you value that, the more you promote that, the more challenging it is to protect those places. And it also kind of underscores the fact that accessing those places is really attached to relationships of class and race and gender that that make them inaccessible to most people. Yeah. <laughs> so so juggling, you know, juggling questions of access and environmental impact are kind of written into the history of outdoor sports and recreation. And why do you think access in particular is so important and, and getting more diverse people into outdoor recreation? I think it's important because there's no reason why any one group of people should <laughs> should no, be able true. to, you know, well, my, I guess at, at root, because I think it's really fun. Like, I love to go for hikes. I love to ski. I love to fish. Um, I don't go very often. I live in the Midwest, but I do appreciate it so much. and. The public land we typically use for outdoor recreation has been preserved by and for the federal government for, for you know, people of privilege, I would say, historically to use as uh, recreational resources. And in recent years, Americans are becoming a lot more aware of what that process looked like back in the 19th century, especially. And so... The dispossession of native peoples, for example, has been was kind of a precursor to the preservation of national parks. And then you think about, you know, what what did that look like with the Forest Service or BLM land, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service land? So I think access matters partly because historically those lands have have been super important to lots of different groups of people. We sh we shouldn't have um, we shouldn't have priority, you know, over it. Right. That leads great into my next question, which currently I'm taking a class actually on the greening of America and the history of the environmental movement. So right now we're actually going into a unit about national parks. And we've been talking a lot about the history with gender and class and how that's played a role in, in a lot of the underlying themes of environmental movements. Right. And so I wanted to kind of take this time to ask you on how does 
current kind of our current view of um, environmental justice play into um, kind of John Muir and Guilford Pinchot's kind of ideas of land and and a really male, white, rich perspective? And how has that not having that underlying female and, and other identifiers playing a role in that? How is that kind of taken away or hindered um, environmental? environmental movements in the past? And maybe how has that bled into environmental movements today? That I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that 100% head on. Um, but I do think, you know, Muir and Pinchot, so, so Muir kind of poster boy for national yeah. park preservation, let's let's keep these landscapes uh, protected for individuals to come and connect with nature and think about the individual relationship to God and, and what have you, and as escapes from civilization and Pinchot head of the forest service, you know, sort of poster boy for wise use. Let's, let's use forests uh, for natural resources for logging and grazing, but um, do it wisely so that we can continue to use those resources. Those tensions are still alive and well, I would say, you know, Pinchot's perspective is probably attached to more masculine points of view because in the early 20th century, you know, industrialization, progressivism, progressive politics, and kind of resource-heavy extractive industry were, were run by men. Um, Muir, there's some interesting scholarship. I'm curious to, to know what you've been reading for class, but there's some interesting scholarship it talks about how Muir, you know, got the preservationist movement moving politically because he also appealed to women's groups and women's organizations that were really important politically in that in that progressive era, um, and so he he mobilized that um, their ideas about nature representing this kind of romantic sublime escape from civilization have been incredibly influential for the environmental movement. Their assumptions, Muir's assumptions in particular, are written in to the Wilderness Act. Um, and then they started, this is not my area of expertise, but again, I can hook you up with some some historians who, who are, are better at it. But um, those assumptions really got um, bumped up against Native peoples and, and different points of view in Alaska in the 70s with the efforts to um, protect public land there. And the legislation in, the, in 1980 um, kind of had, had to figure out how to embrace Native relationships to land and Native traditions of resource extraction. So so the environmental movement is constantly evolving. I'm interested in my own work in Muir and Pinchot and gender, gendered language because I'm really interested in how particular places or pieces of public land become constructed, not only politically, how do they get preserved politically, but how do ideas become attached to specific landscapes? How did we how do we think about the Madison River in Montana as a recreational landscape? Rather, you know, and there have been lots and lots of conflicts over 
that river and other Montana rivers, you know, for mining interests and different and, and dams, dam proposals. Um, why is it that the fly fishing community and Trout Unlimited kind of got a toehold in there and was able to um, prevent the construction of some dam, uh, some of those dams? So, so for me, uh, recreational use um, is part of a, it contributes to a political process that attaches meaning and value to specific areas. Um, and then I, you know, as a historian, as a teacher, I try and get people to consider, okay, who is it? Who is attaching specific meanings to this place? And how is that working? So that kind of connects you up to a really interesting history in the West of, of mobility and, and migration and emigration and uh, especially in, in resort towns, who counts as a local? Well, it's, that's a really tough question. <laughs> yeah, I think it's what I've learned the most about it, it kind of jumping into this area of study more this year is, is there's so many different avenues. And I think it's really something that you can explore and through different lenses, which I think is really um, key and, and a cool way to look at it. Kind of shifting a little bit in your 1996 Pacific Historical Review titled the unbearable whiteness of skiing. You wrote that ski resorts remain, quote, white as snow. And so what from what you know and what you've learned um, over the years and continued your research, now we're, let's say, uh, 26 years later, how have you seen that theme continue to flourish or kind of diminish over time? And, and kind of, can you touch a little bit about what you meant by that and, and kind of your area of study within that realm? Sure, sure. Um... Well, that article is is essentially asking why in a region, the American West, that's so well known for ethnic and cultural diversity, why is it we have so many towns that are really economically and culturally dominated by a very small group of, of wealthy white celebrities? So that was my research question. And then, you know, the answer I, I figured out in that article was that the, the history of the ski resorts in in the Rockies in the mountainous west kind of ref they reflect the history of the sport in that it's Europeans you know from Scandinavia and then from the alpine regions of Europe that tr that brought the sport to the west and so the sport has roots in a kind of European whiteness uh, but those ski towns um, once they became kind of embedded into the tourist economy of the west and then grew more, I guess, economically mature, you'd say, in the 70s and 80s. Um, they kind of doubled down on that image as their brand. So you think about um, Billy Kidd at Steamboat, for example. Um, he's from Vermont, right? So why is he the, the, the brand image for Steamboat Springs? Um, and that that marketing proved really useful for these towns because racially speaking, um, the folks who could afford and would be interested in going to ski places like Aspen and Telluride and Steamboat responded to marketing images that reflected a kind of trans-European white ethnic identity. So it made financial sense. And those, those brands, just kind of those, those cultural meanings became embedded in mountain towns, either through 
you know, kind of the history of mining in Aspen and Telluride, you get this Victorian era mining culture that gets celebrated or in Steamboat, it's cowboy culture, what have you. Both of them kind of reinforce images of, of whiteness in the West. More recently, I think that whiteness looks a little different. I, I think the ski towns are still banking on privileged people coming you know they need month they need folks who will come and spend a week and buy increasingly expensive services in these towns so these towns are still pockets of privilege and celebrity um but privilege looks a little bit more complicated now than i think it did in the 90s it's you know it's intersectional and you know back in the 90s i was thinking oprah winfrey michael jordan right they have enough money they can go to telluride and they will look at home there even though they're black beca- because they are so wealthy um and so famous but i think now the politics of class are expanding a little bit racially um but the money is still driving those towns and i i think what you do see is that the problems that I don't know that that I saw happening in the 90s in towns like Aspen and Steamboat and Telluride, which is that they've become you know housing prices go up um, because they're driven by that resort economy, to, and because they're surrounded by green space and people and and the landscape itself as a natural respite from urban civilization or suburban hell, (laughs) you know, because that's part of the product that they're selling. um, Those towns become extremely expensive to live in. And so even professional class folks like lawyers and teachers and firefighters in Aspen could not afford to live in Aspen. That problem is only expanding and I see it expanding all over the place to towns that aren't, you know, typically resort towns. When you think about the cost of living in San Francisco, for example, or, or New York or what have you. So these, you know, the troubling economics um, are everywhere. Um, and the irony that I talked about in that article that is, hasn't gone away is that the people who make those experiences possible are working class people, usually people of color, sometimes immigrant laborers, um, they make those experiences possible, but they, it only works if they remain kind of invisible. So um, that's, that's a challenge we haven't, we haven't figured out yet. Yeah. On a similar note, um, Outdoor sports have typically been pretty male dominated, I would say. I mean, skiing, for example, I mean, back in the day, I would say was probably seen as more of a a masculine thing to do, conquering a mountain and and whatnot. But as we see these more famous, let's say one of the most famous, Lindsey Vaughn, these female identifying athletes kind of taking the sport to these great heights. What would you say, um, has that changed the conversation, altered the accessibility for that, for female identifying people? Um, that may still be right, white, wealthy females, but would you say the, the, the accessibility and the notion that females can succeed in outdoor recreation has changed? Um, I, I hope so. Lindsey Vaughn is an amazing athlete in some ways. Yes, I think she, she broke a lot of, you know, athletic, 
boundaries with her with her success, Michaela Schifrin, ditto. They are still competing within a broader culture that, you know, has these historical roots that haven't changed. And I and I think they're a little bit trapped in what I would call sort of ski culture because this this history of of European resorts and alpine skiing that, you know, gets attached to to these places in Colorado also informs how Americans consume alpine skiing at least um, through visual culture. I think Lindsey Vaughn and Michaela Schifrin are amazing athletes. They still are running the risk of being interpreted kind of as as sexualized bodies, right? When you think about who's taking their photographs, what do those images look like? What kind of sponsors do they have? How much, you know, are they earning in terms of their sponsorships? Um, you know, their, I don't know how much money they make. So they are amazing role models, but I don't know how much they reflect systematic change. I think Chloe Kim is another example that yeah. might suggest there are more possibilities down the road. But I also think that outdoor sports, um, people interested in the gender and racial politics of outdoor sports could usefully look towards the U.S. women's national soccer team and the WNBA and NCAA equity report, you know, to think about how how those women are talking about equity in terms of pay and also how they're dealing with it in terms of representation. Um, you know, I, I think you and I are similar in that, you know, we share a love for outdoor sports. Academically, there's a small group of historians who study outdoor sports, but there's, and, and we go to the Environmental History Conference and the Western History Conference. There's a whole other community of scholars who are interested in sports and culture and equity and race and gender and sexuality. They're going to the American Studies Conference. They're going to different conferences. And I think what would be, what we're starting to do, what some scholars are starting to do is to think, okay, what happens when we consider outdoor sports and women's soccer, the WNBA together? And how can that enrich our, um, our understandings of sports and the environment on the one hand, or also sports and gender in the other? Yeah, I, that's, that's, couldn't have said it better. <laughs> Um, I definitely, we've talked a lot about the issues that are still being faced and things, how history has changed with recreation and sport. So I'd love for you to touch on like one of my last questions and, and kind of something you can go into is what, do, what do you hope to do by continuing to have these conversations in the classroom as a professor, um, with these, with these aspects of gender, sports, race, recreation, and, and how this will continue going forward? I think as a teacher and a scholar, my main goal is for people to be able to take a step back and think about how is it that I get to do the things that I love so much? Um, what do they mean to me? Um, and how are there other kinds of institutions or forces at work that shape the way I, I don't know, the things I choose to do for fun. Uh, that, that's not maybe a great answer, but um, 
people in American studies in my in my department sometimes it people say, oh, you you take things that we care about and you ruin it, right? So I have a <laughs> class called American Wilderness, which is all about deconstructing what does wilderness mean? How does it get applied? Who is it for? What's it for? Um, and my purpose is not to, to ruin <laughs> American wilderness, but to have us appreciate it in all its complexity as a historical, a historical idea, as a, as a set of policies that, um, as a set of meanings that changes over time and to, kind of think about how we can consume it. And I would say outdoor sports too. How can we consume Western landscapes more thoughtfully um, in terms of equal access, but also environmental impact? You know, we got to think about climate change and these past two summers have really driven home the environmental cost of outdoor recreation with all the crowding, you know, people flooding to trailheads and trying to fish and, you know, the temperatures are so high and the Parking lots are overcrowded, and we're we're just loving these resources to death, and in to a scale that we have not done so before. And so yeah. it's time to think about how how can we protect them, and how might we need to regulate access? Yeah, what, what would that look like? Awesome. And lastly, if you want to just share, I would love to know where you're hoping to go next with your research and your your. Um, studies into this important topic and your um, expertise as you continue forward. Great. Thanks. Two things. First, I'll give a shout out to a new series of books I'm co-editing with my colleague, Phoebe Young. It'll be published from the University of Washington Press, and it's called The Outdoors, Recreation, Environment, and Culture. So anybody who has a book project that might, might fit could look to that series um, there's some buzz about it. I'm really excited. I know we'll have some good books coming out um, of that series soon. My my own work, I'm finishing up a book manuscript, which is a, a, a history of professional outdoor guides. So it's essentially a labor history of outdoor recreation, starting with guides in Maine and the Adirondacks and the Great Plains in the 19th century and going up to the politics of guiding on the Madison River, you know, thinking about public land policy and the the size and scope of the outdoor recreational industry. So I'm really asking, you know, how how do guides do their work? What does their work look like? How has that changed over time? And why is it that we haven't really noticed them <laughs> since they've they've been around from the get go? So yeah. that's what that's what I'm working on. Awesome. Well, thank you, Professor Coleman, for your time today. Your knowledge is really appreciated. And I really enjoyed this conversation and learning more about your research and what you do. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Sports Up podcast. We'll see you again next time. And be sure to click subscribe to get future Sports Up episodes.